We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Chelsea McMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual directors and activists exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change. Today, we're going to discuss the field of healing justice, where wellness, spiritual practice, and social justice come together. It's an emerging field, and today's guest is on the forefront. We're so excited to have Kate Warning with us today. Kate grew into organizing by the resilient leadership of undocumented folks with Vosis de la Frontera in her hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She worked with Carlos Saavedra to launch the Aini Institute, Momentum Trainings, and Movimiento Cosecha. She is an advisory board member of the Milwaukee-based Hometown Yogis and spent two years as the national organizing director at Citizen Well. Kate is a trauma-informed Hatha yoga teacher who integrates somatic tools into her organizing work to work from the heart, as well as focusing on interdependence and social justice in her yoga classes at Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn, and is a founding faculty member of the Liberation School. Her primary learning lab is the Hoop House Collective Home she started in Brooklyn with six like-hearted housemates who represent a spectrum of what it can look like to work for social change and build gracious, hospitable community. You can find out more at katewarning.com. And Kate has a forthcoming podcast herself on healing justice which you can find out more about at www.healingjustice.org. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Chelsea and Rebecca. Thanks for getting through the mouthful of organizations that are part of my life. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's important, and I'm sure we'll dive in more as we hear about your story and how you came to Healing Justice. Will you tell us a little bit about what that is and how you came to it? Yes. So Healing Justice is both incredibly ancient work, integrated holistic work that has been happening forever and um, a field, and I use that term loosely, but a field that is being recognized and valued and participated in more and more in the United States during these times um, and just being named more clearly. So um, the term healing justice started becoming a little more popularized as recently as 2012. And actually, when I was in discernment around uh, how to name this conversation, which you both are um, having a, a very sibling conversation to, uh, to a healing justice one, uh, when we, you talk about the integration of activism and spirituality, when I was struggling with how to name this need to integrate wellness, for some people, it includes spirituality for others, they may not name it as that. And the work that we do for change in the world, healing justice is just one of many names that people reflected back to me. Um, another one is one that I know you two have used at times, um, sacred activism, 
right? Getting a little more at the spiritual dimension of what it is to work for justice in the world. Um, some folks just talk about well-being. Um, some folks talk about embodied leadership. But I think the heart of what uh, we're sort of imperfectly trying to name here is the deep knowing that we need to integrate our work for external change in the world with the work of our inner life. And that healing of the systems of oppression that we see massive disconnection, oppression, violence in our world, the healing of those systems is absolutely necessary so that all people can have access to the conditions of healing in their own life. If you're unsafe, if you're being discriminated against, if you are, if your freedom is limited in any way, it doesn't create supportive conditions for your own well-being. So that external change is necessary. But also for those of us who are working hard at that external change, both on behalf of our own liberation and the liberation of our siblings in the world, if we're not also cultivating an integrated inner life by attuning to what's happening in our bodies, in our spirits, with our breath, um, connecting to whatever we call that energy that animates us, whether it's spirit or God or Allah or um, just breath or energy, the relationship with that energy is totally necessary for us to be able to understand our place in the world and our approach in being able to make external change. And so that sort of um, ambiguous but deeply resonant collection of uh, commitments is sort of what uh, I and, and many others are referring to as healing justice, but also many other names and just getting at like transformation is needed at the from the micro to the macro in so many ways. And we have to integrate the external and the internal to create real meaningful lasting change. Yeah, absolutely. My first thought goes to your work in yoga and somatic trauma work. And, and like you said, we feel this in our bodies. And when we're disconnected from that, we're disconnected from our own healing. We're disconnected from collective healing. Yeah. Can I say something about that from my own life? Because I feel like, yeah, yeah like how did I get here? Because I think 10 years ago, I would have never used the word healing um, for like anything. <laughs> Maybe like healing from a wound, like a very pragmatic physical healing. Um, but yeah, 10 years ago, I, you know, I trained as an organizer uh, at Midwest Academy in Chicago. I'm from Milwaukee. So I'm from like this very, uh, there's access to like a very Olinsky style, um, labor movement-esque uh, transactional kind of orientation to organizing to which I'm extremely grateful for giving me a framework to look very astutely at how power moves and how we must contest the way that power moves in our world. Um, but the way that I was trained into organizing, like was hand in hand with training me out of my deeper ways of inner knowing and what I would refer to now also as training me out of some of my, uh, feminine energy superpowers that are not specific to being female bodied, even though I am, um, but uh, are specific to embracing more of the ways that we can dance in relationship and nonlinear change and uh, create forward motion that is more cyclical than linear. And so not only is it, does uh, 
that kind of the linear framework represent patriarchy, but it also represents whiteness in a lot of ways. There's, there's rigidity there that was useful for getting me to look at how power moves in the world. But my entire frame for how I could show up to create change, which was actually deeply motivated by my heart and my gut sense that my immigrant siblings in my community were, are deeply my concern and that their liberation is deeply my own liberation. And so this really like love, solidarity, motivated commitment that I had was translated into a really pragmatic uh, organizing culture of workaholism. Um, I remember particularly I was at uh, one of my friends and mentors, Carlos Saavedra's house, a few years to being into being part of the immigrant rights movement. And I pulled a book off his shelf that was written by one of uh, uh, Saul Alinsky's um, contemporaries, who, who I'm blanking on the name right now, but there's this image in this book where he would talk about like, yeah, we have these meetings all the time and we'd stay out until like four in the morning strategizing how we're going to like beat the boss and we would just get totally drunk and we'd be smoking and then I would come home and pass out on the couch. And so common was the sight of me passed out on the couch that my like six-year-old child at school, when they had to draw a portrait of their parents, drew a picture of me passed out on the couch. Like that's how my child saw me. And like, aren't I a warrior for the cause? <laughs> and I remember reading that and just being like, oh my gosh, like this, that that's disintegration of our values, right? Yeah. And, and I saw simultaneously the mentors that I looked up to in my organization, which was led by incredibly fierce uh, Latina immigrant women, uh, some of whom were undocumented, some of whom weren't, but, but all had some kind of immigration history. And I looked at them and I simultaneously was like, you are the strongest, most courageous, most committed people that I know. And I want to be you when I grow up. And also saw uh, those same women that I looked up to having debilitating back pain and mm -hmm. that like allowed them to not be able to sit or stand how they needed to and not having the time to go to the chiropractor and take care of their bodies. Um, they're in their forties, right? So like not, uh, not an age where like you should already be disintegrating to that degree. Um, I saw brokenness in family relationships and neglect in the fa in families. And I just felt like there's got to be a way that we can show up with our full force for the cause and also have an integrated home life where we're giving those values to ourselves and to the people that we love and interact with in the day to day and not just turning around and replicating the extraction that happens in capitalism and in corporate structure within our own organizations where we're overworked, underpaid, no health benefits, no security, right? Like we can't just translate those conditions and say, well, it's for a good cause. So here it's okay, because those conditions are extractive to human beings. Um, and so for me, you know, I came to my yoga practice basically as like a cry for help because I needed a place where someone would teach me how to breathe again. I was getting sick all the time, like just flu and stuff like that, but I was sick constantly. 
And my family would say, oh, it's because you're going into high schools and working with so many students in different places. You're just picking up germs. And I knew like, no, my body is fundamentally not resilient in this state. Like my immune system is compromised. And I wasn't breathing properly. I was taking big sighs all the time, basically, because I was gasping for breath because my breath was so shallow um, because of the anxiety and responsibility I was carrying in my work. And I just needed a place where someone was like giving me the cue to remember to inhale and exhale. (laughs) And so I started practicing yoga. And from there, I feel like a whole world has opened up to me in terms of reintegrating the power of breath the power of slowing down, the power of softening and flowing in relationship, and that if we are pacing the way that we think we're going to change the world on an extractive, uh, linear, productivity-based timeline that says push, 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 more, more, more every day of the year, um, we're just going to run ourselves into the ground. And so, um, yeah, that's what brings me to this hunger to have a conversation of what healing and justice in uh, in relationship can look like. Wow. I love that story. I can, um, I think it resonates with a lot of what I've seen in in activist and organizing communities. And, um, I'm curious, like, so how are you going about doing that? Like, what is, what are some of your strategies for addressing that and bringing this healing justice to other people? That's a great question. And I think, um, You know, I'm still inspired on a daily basis from the stories that I'm hearing of how people are experimenting with this um, in their own work. And one thing I just want to name from the outset is that the necessity of naming this work and what I'm seeing in my own story as a dismantling of what I was taught is very, very much related to systems of oppression. And so for me, as uh, coming from a middle-class background, as a white woman, as somebody who I don't have anyone in my family who, who uh, doesn't have citizenship papers in this country, um, I have a lot of layers of privilege, material privilege, that um, also reinforce for me some sense of ease in participating in the dominant culture, right? Like I can navigate that culture and pretty much trust that if I have an encounter with police or if something goes down while I'm outside my house today, I'm going to be okay today, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have that security, but part of the void that happens there is that I've been very disconnected from my own tradition, my own lineage, the knowledge that my ancestors had before coming to this country and assimilating into uh, a soup of whiteness, Mm -hmm. um, that my lineage has forgotten a lot of things, has forgotten a lot of things. And so something I want to lift up is that like my personal story around a reclamation of what does it look like to bring our whole bodies and our whole relationships into this work Um, For many people of color and queer communities, um, isn't a reclamation at all, is like literally how they have survived um, the systems of violence and oppression that have come for their communities over and over. Like when we think about the way that colonialism has worked, one of the uh, most core evil insidious tools of colonialism is to detach people from their language, their culture, their traditions, and their spirituality, mm-hmm. right? Is to systematically try to strip that inner resourcing from a people 
so that they can be exploited. And the way that folks, I mean, we see this in the uh, freedom songs and uh, and spiritual traditions of people who were in, Africans who were enslaved in this country and fought for their freedom. We see it in the resilience of using prayer and fire and ceremony at Standing Rock that indigenous people have um, fought so hard to preserve against all odds through generations um, of, of colonialism in this country. And so... For me, the reclamation of healing justice or the relearning of things that have been systematically forgotten by my people um, includes things like prioritizing relationship over productivity, um, listening to when we need to slow down. I was part of a gathering this past weekend when um, there was a moment of expressing pain and coming into some conflict in the room around whether the space would be able to meet the needs of people of color. It was a multiracial space. And there was a really important moment where there was a choice point of the white facilitators to either say, okay, thank you for sharing that. Now let's move on with our agenda. Um, or to open up space and actually scrap the plan and respond to the needs that were coming up in the room. Um, and I think that really looks like a, a valuing of our whole humanity and bringing ourselves to this work, a, a, a making space for bringing in spirit and emotion and what is really happening beneath the surface and not just a goals-oriented, like, let's mm -hmm. push through and, and um, cover over and blast past, right? Um, and I think it also shows up in the way that organizations are trying to do a better job in this environment of complete urgency and incredibly real consequences um, in this age of right-wing extremism, having a ton of power in our country, both culturally and literally politically, um, there is the availability of unending urgency every single day and real consequences for every moment that we can't, that we aren't stopping a deportation um, or uh, working to um, close prisons and change our policies that, that incarcerate people, right? Like there's real human life costs every single day that we're not uh, engaging with that urgency. But also if we're driving ourselves from that place of urgency 24-7 every day of the year, um, we're not going to be making good decisions. And so what does it look like for our organizations to actually lean back and create some rhythms? Um that are not that are driven by other things in addition to urgency, right? So those are a couple ways that I see people having that conversation of what healing justice can look like in the configurations where we're uh, working from a, a dominant narrative frame that is um, patriarchal and white centric and um, heteronormative uh, to lean into some of the deeper knowing that uh, of how we need to flow and how change happens in cycles and, tr and trying to integrate some of that uh, bigger picture knowledge into how we're approaching the work. I think, I wonder what some, I wonder what some advice might be on how to approach the struggle. I see this tension that occurs both within an individual and in organizations, like you said, where I mean, I'm just thinking of activists I know and so many people who really want to do something and they're so overwhelmed with that sense of urgency and thinking, I need to be doing something all the time and I can't let up until 
until what? Until the problem is solved or, you know. Yeah, and people get very stuck in like a fight or flight response, it seems like, where that sort of um, neurological place of overwhelm. I've seen so much of that. Yeah. So how do we hold that balance and know when it's okay to step back and when we do need to charge ahead? I wonder, Kate, if you have any advice around that based on your experience or what you've seen in the world, how do we hold that balance of being and doing? So for me, the realization of um, the impact that that overwhelm was having in my own life came when I started working uh, one-on-one with a a woman named Yardana Peacock, who's been in this field of healing justice since before that term was really flying around uh, at the at the level that it is now. Um, and, sh- and she's the founder of Liberation School, so I have the joy of uh, actually collaborating with her regularly now. But I came to her and, and uh, she gave me a questionnaire when I started working with her. And basically, uh, one of the questions was around identifying my own default state. And the, the answer to that question for me was so clear because over and over and over in all the conversations that I had when people said, how are you? My whole body said overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Like that was my word, right? Um, And I think it's interesting because when I started learning about trauma and how trauma functions, the definition of trauma that I learned from Halakuri that I like to use myself, it feels right to me, is that trauma is anything that overwhelms our capacity to respond. And so when I think about our world, like, Every single social issue that I can think of definitely overwhelms my capacity to respond. Like there are few things in my life other than just like cleaning the kitchen. And actually I live in a community house with seven people. So sometimes even cleaning the kitchen overwhelms my capacity to respond. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Your roommates are like, yeah, nice excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but like that, that experience of overwhelm is, is what a healthy, integrated person should be feeling when looking at the state of our world. This mm. is so much bigger than any organization we can build or than any amount of time we can be given in a human lifetime. Um, and so I think about that and just say, okay, so what would a new, what would a new expectation in my body look like? Um, acknowledging that we're starting from a place of total overwhelm, right? There's so much input. There's so much stimulation around the things that need to change and how I need to participate to make that change possible. And so I think I marry that understanding with something that super changed my life that one of my dear friends and mentors, Carlos Saavedra, said to me uh, when he was doing research and putting together a training called The Long View, which... Carlos is like a super learning, incredible maniac. (laughs) And he decided I'm going to take 6,000 years of history and put it into a five-day training. Okay. So Carlos is like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So, so one of the main things that he got from working in the dreamer movement and being on that cycle of urgency and what we need to do for our communities, but then also doing research for this training is he got this incredible amount of perspective about time. Um, which I wouldn't say that I have, but through him, I have tried to borrow. Um, and one of the things that he'll say to me is, um, 
Wisdom is knowing how long things take. And I think for me, that quote really grounds my sense of overwhelm. Um, I work with many organizations around their strategy and uh, through Momentum, uh, which is an organizing training institute. We do training about social movement uh, theory and strategy. And I was working with an organization recently that uh, really is like the most kind of alive and generative, in my opinion, uh, anti-war demilitarization organization in that space right now in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that's been really tough in having conversations with them is um, actually like permission to ask ourselves what would victory look like right now in this year, in next year, in our lifetimes, knowing that our mission of wanting to dismantle the most violent force in the history of the world, the U.S. military, like the most violent force in world history, we're going to take it apart. And that is simultaneously something that we must stay absolutely committed and resolved to do. And it is something that we must acknowledge, like we didn't get to this place in one lifetime. And it is absolutely likely that the people who are giving their lives to that work will see very little budge on that transformation in their lifetime, right? And I don't want to take miracles out of the question, but the, the, the likeliness that like, you know, some of those activists are 75 years old, like the likeliness that in the next 25 years, they're going to see the complete and total dismantling of all state violence is very low, right? And so how can we know how long things take and say to ourselves, of course, in our hearts, we know it is not enough until every person gets free. We know it is not enough. And at the same time, like, how might we pace our expectations for our efforts and understand our limits as human beings, seeing ourselves as right-sized in the context of nature, billions of other humans, um, you know, billions and billions of years, like how might we understand our small role and how we might give it in full service to a greater transformation that will go on for long after we're gone. And I think for me, that helps me ground the overwhelm is just to remember like how tiny I am in the whole thing and how it is simultaneously of utmost importance, how I show up in every second of this precious life I've been given and like soon I will return to fertilizer <laughs> mm -hmm. and the struggle will continue. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I, I have one of my own spiritual teachers, uh, Cynthia Bougeau, talks about the concept of deep time and says, like, that's where the change occurs. And um, I think in my own spiritual practice, I've had to learn, like, to step out of a place of like, oh my gosh, how do I fix what's wrong right now? How do I, how do I, how do I change it? How do I fix it? You know, and step back and tap into my own deeper knowing, deeper wisdom, deeper intuition, the place where I'm connected to the spirit and ask, what is it that I'm being called to do right now? And how do I trust that that's what I need to do and let go of needing to see a specific outcome right now. And to me, being in that place is what actually creates the opening for miracles to occur, for something that you never expected that was possible to actually come into being and come to fruition. 
I think I just, I want to say real quick, what I'm hearing here are two big spiritual teachings. One of them is holding all things simultaneously. It's sort of that yes and teaching of, yeah, there's stuff to, there's stuff that needs to be done. And I need to take a step back and chill out for a second. Just being able to hold both of those expands our capacity for what we're able to hold. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of my teachers, Andrew Harvey, sometimes talks about the shadow side of hope, how hope sometimes limits us or keeps us from tapping into that, that deeper place. I think you're talking about Rebecca, because we start to rely on something. And so the hope can be like, well, I know I can do this thing. I can jump into action and respond to a problem or hoping that something has to turn around eventually. But if we can really come to this place of acceptance that, yeah, I might not see anything happen in my lifetime. You know, I'm 30 years old. I'm not quite as close to my death, knock on wood, as those 75 year old activists you're talking about, Kate, but it still might not happen in our lifetimes. You know, the deep acceptance of that. Andrew Harvey might say that the only thing that can come after that deep acceptance is pure love you know, that isn't limited by my expectations of, of time or what should be done. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And we need so much community around holding that complexity because the, something that I saw through my work at, um, citizen well, mobilizing people who are coming really squarely from kind of a wellness community space. People go to yoga classes, festivals, uh, meditation centers who, um, eat clean and shop green and do all the kind of mainstream marketed wellnessy things. Um, I was really inspired, uh, you know, and it actually moved me from Milwaukee to Brooklyn, New York, um, out of deep inspiration from the leadership of Carrie Kelly, who founded that organization and really naming the ways that sometimes we can go so far down the spiritual meaning making rabbit hole that then we're no longer showing up in accountability to people and we're not actually making the sacrifices um, and leaning into the discomfort of what it takes to show up for each other in a real way anymore, right? Because it can get real comfy cozy in that meaning-making space. In the spiritual bypassing. Yeah, and that when you're like out in the streets and your lower back is tired from marching all day and you're thirsty, like we don't want to put you through that every day, but like we definitely need you out there some of the days. Um, and so I think that, you know, if, if, if you don't mind me mentioning a little bit why I also feel motivated to start a podcast, which I'm so excited to be doing in some ways alongside both of you, um, and have been inspired by your desire to, to lift up these kind of conversations as well. I think they're needed everywhere. Um, is that we need more space to share stories in community, not just one-on-one, not just with like folks who have the privilege of access to workshops or retreats or amazing teachers or the luxury of time to read books that sort of ground us in the spirituality or wellness practices that can uh, sustain the meaning of our work in the world. But we need to be figuring out ways to share more and more stories so that we can remain accountable to one another. And I think, like, for example, yesterday I had a conversation uh, with somebody named Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, um, 
doing incredible work in, in public activist theology, which I did not even know was a thing. Um, and in our conversation yesterday, you know, uh, Robin is a trans person. Robin is, um, is a theologian. Robin is Latinx. Robin is bridging um, many what we talked about as borderlands of identity that I just don't have daily experience of bridging. So I need to do so much listening to even have any hope of being accountable to the ways in which I want deeply to show up for Robin's humanity and and uh, dignity in this country, in this world. Um, and so I am hungry, as I know you both are too, to just share the complexity of uh what it is to merge action, contemplation, well-being, sustainability, um, and the sacrifice that's going to be needed, a very real sacrifice. I mean, people die in social movements like this is a real moment. But in order to hold that kind of dance and complexity and flow, I have to be in so much relationship with other people's stories and perspectives. And so that for me is why in this moment of healing justice, becoming a conversation of increasing interest um, and bringing in people who don't necessarily identify with the word spirituality, um, but are attending to their spirits or that energy which animates them through healing modalities, um, through reflection, through thinking and learning about trauma, um, cultivating resilience that some people might call a spiritual quest and others wouldn't, but it's still tending to the energy that animates us. Um, mm -hmm. And to convene that conversation regularly in a way that that resource is democratized, because I tell you, if I uh, was still living in Milwaukee, I, there are beautiful people working at this intersection there, but I would have had so so much more limits around the amount of conversations that I've been able to have being kind of more transient and being able to move through the national space and being out here in New York. Um, and I want to like give those rich conversations and perspectives back to folks. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to do with the Healing Justice podcast and then uh, to see where it goes from there. <laughs> and I'm I'm really glad that you brought up that point, Kate, about the that people die in social movements. Sometimes I think one of the convictions I've been feeling recently and that brings me to do some of this work is just this sense that there's something there's a sense of uncertainty right now around what's happening in the world and what's going to happen. It's like already there's so many things that have occurred that I think a lot of us have felt like this could never happen. Like, this is just crazy. Like, what is going on? And and there's something I, I don't ever want to encourage um, what is to me like a very dysfunctional sort of martyr complex or this I, I romanticization of uh danger and death and all of that. But there is something for me that I feel really deeply called to about developing the courage and my spiritual practice and foundation really being part of developing the courage to be able to say, I can't always be totally safe. And maybe sometimes I'm going to be called to do things that might put my life on the line or my, I might have to put myself at risk. And that we may be approaching a time where some of us are going to have to be willing to do that. And um, I don't know why what you said just kind of spoke to me about that, because I, I never want to romanticize that danger or 
like be reckless about it. But at the same time, um, I think that that sometimes is what civil disobedience and activism and nonviolent resistance requires. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that that keeps me grounded as grounded as you can be in that sense, because I was definitely, you know, growing up white middle class, my expectations around my own sense of safety are really high compared to most of the world. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like if somebody just like tells me they don't like how I said something, I'm like, oh, I feel unsafe here. Right. (laughs) Right. Like that's my standards are ridiculous. Um, but, uh, so I think in community and in hearing one another's stories, we can we can hear the perspectives of folks who have like literally never had the luxury of feeling safe. Yeah. Um, and also to have that help us remember that safety is a total illusion. Yeah. Um, a total illusion. And so I think, you know, when you talk about the martyr complex and earlier I was talking about workaholism, mm-hmm. um, like even you know, not necessarily receiving direct bodily harm um, from another person or from the violence of the state. Um, That kind of workaholism is is a piece of martyrdom. But that I think the distinction there is coming from a place of clear embodied choice. Mm -hmm. For those of us who have the luxury of uh, putting our safety more at risk by choice, because many don't get any choice around that. but I think there's a difference between the automatic impulse or, or seeming only choice of workaholism or of putting bodies on the line uh, versus a more integrated community accountable mm-hmm. uh, conversation where we can dance with risk and sacrifice and restoration and healing and as a collective organism, we can be dancing with that in different ways and create opportunities for those of us like me that have way more supports for my own safety embedded yeah. into the world that I live in um, to actually be able to step forward and take more intentional risk because my sibling over here, you know, person of color or trans or queer person um, is experiencing that level of risk just at a base level to go grocery shopping. Right. Um, and so I think that that dance gets to happen when we're in accountable relationship and when we're running the pace of our own spirits and bodies and lives such that we can take a breath and make a choice as opposed to feeling like compelled that there is only one way to respond, Right. Wow. I love that imagery that you just gave us. We talk a lot about wrestling with some of these difficult issues. We use that that word a lot. Um, but I love the imagery. It's so beautiful and graceful of dancing, dancing with some of the complex issues um, with one another in community and in accountability to one another. Um, I know that you have to leave soon. And so this is probably a good place to end and a really great thought to end on. Um, We do like to end our episodes by asking for recommendations for practices. Um, It can be art, books, movies, whatever it is that is nourishing you and inspiring you and giving you hope right now. So, Kate, can you tell us what is nourishing you right now? Hmm. Okay, so I think what is inspiring me is 
Well, it's more like a question. Can a question inspire me? Sure. (laughs) I wish there was a movie about it. Maybe there is. Somebody should let me know. Um, But I think the question of how we we might use more um, physical and musical expression to discharge trauma together in community is what's inspiring Mm -hmm. me. I had an experience this past weekend of a a room of folks that I mentioned earlier that uh, like a hundred people that represented tons of different class and gender identity and uh, racial backgrounds and immigration statuses. And we had this really profound moment of pain surface in the large group and folks of color just started one after the other taking organic leadership to lead song and lead movement and lead dance. And it created such an opening for people to actually feel into what it is to hold one another's pain without feeling like we have to fix it with words or with plans all the time. So I'm feeling really inspired by what it looks like to move our voices and our bodies to um, just give us some resourcing to be with um, Mm -hmm. the pain and trauma, even as we work, uh, as we work toward liberation, like how do we build some cultural tenacity to, uh, to be in the part where it hasn't fully come through yet? You know, that's interesting, because one of the things I remember having a conversation with something, somebody, uh, and just saying, like, our culture, and especially white American culture, we've lost a lot of these ancient traditions of public mourning and public expressions of grief. And what would it look like to create protests or actions that were essentially collective expressions of grief and mourning and like developing rituals um, and practices that could sort of be done collectively that, like you said, could help us discharge some of that stuff in a in a kind of public way and, and invite others into participation with that. So that's a really, that, I think that's a great question. Um, Chelsea, what about you? I had an answer, but something came up as we were talking, and it's this quote from Albert Einstein you may have heard, where he says, no problem can be, sol- no problem can be solved from the same consciousness that created it. I'm just really inspired by everyone in the healing justice movement and sacred activism, really inspired by the transformation of our social movements and and transformation of ourselves and how we're changing that consciousness from which our movements is happening. So I'm really inspired about that. And Rebecca, what about you? Um, so mine is a movie that I saw, I actually saw it, um, several weeks ago now. Uh, but I think it's still out in theaters. It's called Whose Streets? And it's a documentary about, um, following some activists in Ferguson in the two years after the death of Michael Brown and really showing these sort of like ordinary people who are galvanized and sort of like, uh, to to begin to like step up and um, who kind of grow into their leadership and their identity as activists. And one of the things that I think is really um, so profound about the movie in that in a discussion group that I participated in afterwards that I think a lot of people were really responding to was just the sense of this joyful, beloved community that in in the midst of like harassment from the police and sort of um, 
all the sorts of uh, denigration that is, exists in the media and the real trauma of seeing people, um, community members, like die and just be shot and killed by the police over and over again. Um, and, and just the, the difficulty of that struggle um, to put their bodies on the line every day. There's this sense of a real joyful, beloved community. Um, and I think that's something that we don't always see in news stories or in documentaries about the fight for justice is, is that, um, that emphasis on the, the joyful and beloved community and the way that the love that people have for one another holds them together and sustains them through that time. So, um, yeah, that's my recommendation. Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you, Kate, for being with us today. Yes. Thank you for your beautiful work and looking forward to continuing the conversation. You can find out more about Kate's Healing Justice podcast at www.healingjustice.org. And thank you to everybody listening. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. It really helps us to increase our visibility and to find new listeners. We're also on Google Play, Playcast, and Stitcher. And let us know if there's another service or app you'd like us to submit to. Visit listentotherising.com to sign up for a newsletter, to find links to the topics we discuss, and to give us feedback. And then you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Listen to the Rising, and we're also on Facebook. <laughs>